Our text for today is from Acts chapter 12. I'm not going to be showing any of the verses on the screen this morning, so if you would like to follow along, open up God's Word, your worship folder. If you want to use one of our Bibles here at church, Acts chapter 12 is found on page 920. Page 920. Dear brothers and sisters, there is something that I need to say to you today. There's something that all of us need to hear. And it's this. Everything is going to be okay. In fact, everything is going to be absolutely glorious. Now, throughout this entire fall ministry season, we have been focusing on the mission of our Father and the theology behind the mission of our Father. Our mission, which is this, helping ordinary people know and share what? Extraordinary life in Christ. Extraordinary life in Christ. We've been saying all along that this extraordinary life is the life that you were meant for, created for, designed for. It's the life that we had long ago in the garden. It's the life that we lost when we fell into sin. It's the life that Jesus Christ has won for us through his birth and his suffering and death, his resurrection and his ascension as king over all things. It's this extraordinary life that we will have one day in fullness, as we just saw in our gospel reading, when Christ returns in all of his glory and all of his light and his love. And it is this extraordinary life that we can begin to have, at least in part, even now, as followers of our great King, our Lord, our Savior, our brother, and our friend, Jesus Christ. Over the last nine weeks or so, we've been slowing down and focusing on the first half of the book of Acts, the lives of the very first Christians. And I hope that we've seen that they were ordinary people, just like you and just like me. And yet, because of the Holy Spirit, because of the resurrection of Christ, they also had, at least in part, this extraordinary life in him. We've seen throughout this series, first of all, the great mission and the purpose that Christ gave to them. And the great promise that he made, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's that same mission and promise that we have still to this very day as his people. We've seen ordinary people, extraordinary life in the way that they loved one another and cared for one another. And we saw it in the way that they even dealt with divisions and conflicts within the church. And we've seen it in their joys, and we've seen it in their sorrows, we've seen it in their boldness and praying for boldness to go out and continue to proclaim the good news of Christ. And we've seen it in the sorrow of the first martyr when Stephen was stoned to death. And last week we saw in the conversion of St. Paul 
That how in this extraordinary life and in the gospel, the good news that we can have, you can have, just as Paul had, a completely new understanding of yourself, a whole new identity that can never be taken away from you. And as we conclude this series, our focus this week, not on identity, but on our security. The security that we have in Christ, our risen, triumphant, all-powerful King. That Jesus would say to you today, everything is going to be okay. It's going to be glorious. Two things that I want us to focus in on in today's text that will show us this great security that we have in Christ. First of all, we're going to look at the imperfect but persistent faith of those very first Christians. And then secondly, I want us to see the obvious, but not always so obvious, faithfulness of Christ the King. The imperfect but persistent faith of those very first Christians and the obvious but not always so obvious faithfulness of Christ the King. Well, that's interesting. It just went away. We got, okay, there it is. You know, I'm not worried because Christ is on the throne and everything is going to be okay. All right, let's look at the very first of our points, the faith of these first Christians. It says in Acts chapter 12, verse 1, that about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Herod the king. Now we have to always understand which Herod the king are we talking about? There's all sorts of Herod the kings in the New Testament. There's Herod the Great. He was the king during the time when Jesus was born and the slaughter of the innocents, if you remember that terrible story. And then there was Herod Antipas. And he was the King Herod during the ministry of Christ and during the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. This Herod is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I, who was the nephew of Herod Antipas and the grandson of Herod the Great, and he was just as bad as the rest of them. And here Herod the king, Agrippa I, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. It says he killed James, the brother of John. You remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee and those fishermen. And James here is the very first of those original followers and disciples of Christ who now has been martyred, who has been killed for the faith. Interestingly, it would be John who would live the longest, his brother John, all those years missing his brother. And now, of course, they've arrested Peter as well, and he's going to bring Peter out to the crowds of people and no doubt have Peter executed as well. And it says in verse 5, as we look at the faith of these first Christians, verse 5 of chapter 12 says that Peter was kept in prison, but 
earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The Greek there, earnest prayer, it is language which means to strain at something. There was a straining and there was a groaning in this earnest prayer. Such was the faith of these first Christians. But if you look back up at the very last part of verse 4, it says here about Peter that there were four squads of soldiers to guard him. Four squads. And then it says in verse 6 and following that in the prison there, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And there were sentries before the door who were guarding the prison. This is maximum security situation that Peter was in. But did you notice something? Four squads and two soldiers and two chains and sentries at the gate. And this is the night before Peter is going to no doubt be executed just as James was. And what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. Sleeping between the two guards with the two chains. In fact, we see here in the latter part of verse 7 that he is sleeping so soundly, it says the angel of the Lord struck Peter on the side to wake him up. You know, bonk, wake up, Peter. Peter is sound asleep the night before his execution. And now we can only surmise but as we look at this and look at Peter's amazing faith here, we say, well, how could he be sleeping? It's because Peter knew the two possibilities. The one possibility was maybe there would be a miracle. Maybe God would send an angel. Maybe I'll be set free. He's been set free before. Maybe that's going to happen again. That'd be a wonderful thing. Or secondly, Peter knows that if no miracle comes and he's not set free, and he dies, he's going to be with Jesus. His Savior, his Lord, his King, who is his best friend. I mean, truly, this is a, believe it or not, a win-win situation. Either he's going to be set free, and that's cool, that's great, or if the worst possible thing happens, it will only bring about the greatest thing, which is he will get to be with his best friend, the King, Jesus Christ. Do you see that? But not even Peter's faith was a perfect faith. Because it says down here in verse 9 that as the angel literally chains are dropping off of him and guards are not waking up and doors are opening, it says in verse 9 that Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I mean, not even Peter. It was happening to him could believe that it actually was happening to him. It was an imperfect faith. And then he realizes that he's free and he makes his way. We see in the top of verse 12, he makes his way to the house of Mary, who was the mother of John. His other name was Mark. This is the author of the gospel of Mark, who was Peter's right-hand man. And it says in verse 12 that many were gathered together and were praying. They were praying those earnest, groaning prayers. And when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. I love this passage of scripture. It says, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate. 
but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate, and they said to her, you're out of your mind. Rhoda, come on. That's not just a sitcom from the 70s. A few of you got that. <laughs> you're out of your mind, you tell me Peter's at the gate. And it says, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, ah, oh, it's his angel. You're out of your mind. <laughs> I have to smile. What is the very thing that they have been praying for? Earnest prayer, praying to God that Peter would miraculously be set free from prison. And Peter is miraculously set free from prison. The very thing that they've been praying for. Oh, you're out of your mind. It's not possible. And we smile at that, I think because we realize that that is us, isn't it? That's, that's kind of how our faith is and so often how our prayers are. We're praying and we're praying and we're praying, but somewhere, sometimes deep down in there, is God really going to answer this prayer? We pray. Maybe you remember the story from Mark chapter 9 and the father whose son is in great distress and evil spirit and he comes to Jesus and Jesus speaks to him about all things are possible for those who believe. And what does the father say? He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that us? Isn't that the imperfect faith? Thank the Lord we're not saved by the strength of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith. And that is Jesus Christ crucified and risen for you and for me. Not a perfect faith by any means. But it is a persistent faith that they had. A persistent and a stubborn faith that I've seen in so many of you as well. I mean, Stephen, the very first martyr, stoned to death. And then a great persecution breaks out. And even Saul himself was dragging, it says, men and women from the homes and through the streets. And now James, one of the original disciples, has been killed by the sword. Probably means he was beheaded. You think, Jesus, are you really on the throne? Jesus, are you really there? Jesus, you're not taking care of your, one of your boys? The disciples? And Peter has been arrested, and I'm sure the temptation to turn away was strong, and yet still they prayed, where else can we turn? Because ultimately they knew and they believed that the Son of God, God himself, had bled and died for them. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight. The sight of what? Those rich wounds of Christ the King, yet visible above in beauty glorified. We have a wounded King on the throne, a King on the throne still with the scars of the marks of His love for you, for us. It is not a perfect faith, but it is a persistent, stubborn faith even as Job would have said in the Old Testament, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord through it all. That's the first thing that we see, the imperfect but persistent faith of the first Christians, which really flowed from 
the obvious, but not always so obvious, faithfulness of Christ. I mean, we see some obvious ways that Christ is being faithful to his people, to his church, and to the mission here in this miraculous release of Peter from prison. Chains are falling off, as I said, gates are opening of their own accord. And we also see it here in the death of Herod. Herod Agrippa I. He's now in Caesarea, and there's some people who are desperate in need. They, they need Herod to be on their side because they rely on him, it says, for food. And then it says in verse 21 of Acts chapter 12 that on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And there's a Jewish historian named Josephus who's writing some years after Luke has written the book of Acts. And Josephus records this very same event. And Josephus describes, it says here, the royal robes of Herod Agrippa I. And Josephus describes how his robes were woven with a type of silver so that his robes there as the sun was shining and the sun was, and the glorious sun was reflecting off of his robes. No doubt he looked almost godlike, not an accident on Herod's part. And as he's speaking to the people and his robes are reflecting the brilliance of the sun, this great oration, and the people are shouting out, oh, it's the voice of a god and not a mere man. And... Uh, doesn't say anywhere here that Herod uh, corrected them on that point. No doubt didn't mind at all that they considered him a god. But there was a truer and greater king who did mind. Verse 23, it says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, look, we can conjecture and theorize what caused the death of Herod Agrippa I, a ruptured appendix, uh, intestinal parasites. Let us not speak any more of that. Yuck. But he's dead. He is removed as a threat to the gospel, to the good news, to the church. An angel of the Lord came. Well, who sent the angel of the Lord? Well, who's on the throne? It's Jesus Christ who sent this angel. What does this show us? It's very clear and obvious here that Jesus Christ will defend his people. Jesus Christ will defend his church. Let us not be so cynical or so scared and worried in the age in which we live and everything is changing and I realize that. It seems like the church is diminishing at least here in the United States and the West. But let us not be cynical or afraid. Jesus Christ will accomplish his purposes. Jesus Christ will defend his people. You are his beloved. We are his bride, the apple of his eye. And here it's pretty obvious. But it's not always so obvious. 
that he's working, that he's being faithful. You know, we saw this just a few chapters, just a few weeks ago, actually, with the death of Stephen and his martyrdom. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, There arose on that day, the day that Stephen died, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Then it describes how Saul was ravaging the church, and he went house after house, house dragging off men and women and committing in the prison. And then verse 4, it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who were scattered from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria because of this terrible persecution, men and women, families torn apart, but they're taking with them what? The word, the good news of Jesus. Remember the mission and the promise that Jesus had made. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus here is being absolutely faithful to his mission, to his church, and to his promise, and yet in a way that is not at all obvious. In fact, it looks like the opposite. Through persecution, through imprisonment, even death, as I said, families torn apart, and yet they're taking with them the scattering of the believers. It says literally Judea and Samaria, the very places that Christ had promised the gospel would go. And finally, we also see this after the death of Herod, verse 24 of chapter 12, says that the word of God increased and multiplied. And one verse later, chapter 13, now all of a sudden we have the very first missionary journey of St. Paul. We have it recorded in Acts not one, not two, but three different great missionary journeys of Paul. Here's the big shift here in the book of Acts. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know the story that this whole story is going to culminate with Paul arriving in the city of Rome. The good news of Jesus has made it all the way to the capital city, the most powerful empire in the world. And we know from some of other of Paul's writings, his letters, that the gospel made its way, the good news, Christians into the palace of the Roman emperor himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to where? To the ends of the earth, all the way to Rome. Oh, but how did that happen? Doesn't seem very obvious that Jesus is being faithful because Paul has arrived in the city of Jerusalem before all this took place. And he has preached the gospel, and an angry mob has formed and attacked him. A riot breaks out. Paul is arrested. He puts on trial, and another trial, and another trial. Eventually, he is sent to Rome to be on trial. And as he's sailing through the Mediterranean Sea, a great storm, a hurricane of sorts, comes upon the, the boat, and the ship is wrecked. And Paul is in the ocean and almost drowns and dies. And then he makes it finally to Rome, and he is imprisoned in Rome, the book of Acts says, for two years, chained morning, noon, and night to a Roman soldier for two years. But in that way, the Roman centurions are hearing the gospel, and in that way, they're taking it back to the palace of the emperor himself. And Jesus is being faithful to his promises and to his people, but in a way that didn't look like he was. And the same 
dear brothers and sisters, is true for you. And the obvious great blessings he brings into your life. And in the darkest and worst times in your life, Christ is on the throne with his wounds, with his scars, reigning omnipotently, all-powerfully, so that when you come forward this morning and you take the bread and the wine, that is the great king of the universe coming down once again to serve you. And to say to you today, everything is going to be okay. It's going to be glorious. To Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.